let's just start at the beginning. Why, if yeah. I'm a if I'm a campaign or I'm a you know the Democratic Governors Association or whomever, I'm the D trip. Why do I want a turnout yeah. model? What am I going to do with it? A lot of different things. One is weighting surveys. We do that sampling mm-hmm. surveys, weighting surveys. That's figuring out you know kind of using the turnout model to uh, proportionately weight responses based on how likely they are to, to turn out to get to the likely voter sample. That's just one thing. But one of the original applications of turnout scores is, you know, field communication, you know, creating a, a, a group of people to reach out to maybe the ones who have a 20 to 80% likelihood of voting to just remind them to vote. And, and mm-hmm. so narrowing in your communications, that's really where a lot of this started and kind of expanded out into to uses of uh, polling and analysis and planning, campaign planning strategy. And so I, I think it cuts across all all avenues of, of campaign planning in sort of the modern environment. Welcome to Crosstabs, the podcast that tries to explain how polls are designed and conducted, who they include, who they leave out, what they say and what they don't say, so you can better navigate yet another most important election year in history. I'm your host, Vera Bostic, founder of The Difference Engine, a research-backed strategy studio helping leaders make big decisions. Each episode, we'll take a look at the art and science of polling. No takes, no spin, no predictions. This time, we have help from David Radloff, one of the founding partners of Clarity Campaign Labs. They do modeling and analytics, polling and strategy for Democratic campaigns, progressive organizations, and related nonprofits. He sat down with me to explain the difference between turnout models and horse race polling and how they interact. Let's dig in. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. There's several things that we wanted to talk about today, but I think kind of one of the first things was just the nature of how polling and data gets represented over the course of mm-hmm. an election cycle, and in particular, how the kind of horse race orientation of election coverage really impacts the way that we talk about data as it moves through the cycle. How would you characterize the way kind of polls get covered by the media in this sort of horse race frame? It's a a great question. I mean, everybody loves the horse race. Everybody internally in media, on campaigns, people want to know there's a lack of information uh, or actually accurate information about what is actually happening in a close campaign. So I, I totally get the excitement around covering the horse race. I mean, I frankly want to know too, but I think there's a, a lot of different challenges with the way that it's it's covered. But in particular, one of the things that you often see is moving from poll to poll between different providers and just actually covering it as this survey says whatever race is 50 to 48, and the next one says it's you know 47 to 40. Therefore, there's been a bunch of movement in the race and conflating the idea of movement with all of the other things that can account for a lot of differences between those different top lines. One, different pollsters who run different methodologies, different ways of polling, different ways of screening or doing, you know, figuring out who they think is a likely voter, whether it's even likely voters versus all registered voters, uh, and a lot of other factors, and just simple noise because, you know, response rates have really declined in recent years. And so you're talking to one set of 800 people in a state one time and another set of 800 people another time. And folks even, you know, tend to forget and not cover things like margins of error or anything along those lines, much less all of the other differences that can account for a lot of movement. And I mean, obviously, there's sometimes there is movement, but a lot of times the what's covered as movement is is not necessarily that. That is an important thing for us to just address. Like one of the things about just basic candidate matchup questions is that they are often formulated as if the election were held today. And so they're literally sort of snapshots in time, and they are a reflection of how they would vote if the election were held today, but the election will not be held today. The election will be held in November, right? That's kind of issue number one. We see this also in other kinds of surveys that we do, where you know, we might have a brand tracker, for instance, Mm. and you'll see a certain amount of wobble in certain characteristics. But in general, like if if you're not doing monthly trackers, if you're doing quarterly trackers, you don't really see that much movement at all. That's one part of it, this kind of taking one or two or three polls and starting to try to draw a line between them and say that this is as if voters were walking around with their very own dial, just constantly registering their opinions, which is 
yeah. which would be noisy as hell, I bet. The other part of it that I think is interesting is that margin of error piece. Like as a researcher, it frustrates me to see people saying, well, you know, he's got a three point lead with a margin of error of four points. It's like, well, mm -hmm. then I don't know, you can call that a lead at all. Like it, it yeah, could yeah. literally be the opposite set of numbers. There's a, a lot of, of that. And I, I do think there's some differences. I mean, you mentioned the the brand example. I think, I, I, I don't know, because that's, you know, not the area we work in a lot, but I do think some of that probably is legitimately more stable than than the the political side. But I do think, yeah, a lot of it just simply isn't the type of movement we're, we're talking about. And margins of error, I mean, if folks, even internally who consume a lot of polls, don't even remember that as much as they really should. So if you, maybe I'll take one step back and say this, yeah. like a, a lot of these reporters are not new to covering mm -hmm. elections. So why do they do it this way? Why, why don't they seem to be well, more sophisticated about how polls work? <laughs> I mean, I think a couple of reasons. One, I mean, covering the horse race is fun and gets coverage. So I, I certainly think that's an, an element of it. I also think from survey to survey, it's really hard to find the data. And so I think that's maybe the one of the more interesting things is if somebody you know who's who's listening now or real wants to dig in i mean even myself when we're looking through at public polling you know it's all in a different format uh, each polling shop does a, things a, a little bit differently you know the margin of error may be listed somewhere and and you know really how it's calculated you know is on the response level per survey but everybody thinks of it as at the the survey level and so it's actually kind of hard to find that information and when I think when you're moving fast a lot of folks don't delve into the top lines and, and cross tabs and, and that information I mean a lot of that is actually really hard to read in in a number of formats and so you know folks look at the summary level and then just cover that and I think that in some ways, can be somewhat forgiven for for that when it you know even professionals have to dig in and, and find the details to how it's it's surveyed. I mean we do that a lot when we're looking at public data and actually trying to find okay you know this survey says one thing and you you have to delve into the very end to see okay that was maybe all registered voters and then it's another one's likely voters and one has 450 interviews and the other has a thousand interviews and it's just a lot going on there and I think even folks who work day in and day out out on, on campaigns themselves and also media and, and reporters, you know, run into that challenge of, of being able to quickly find the information on individual surveys if, if they want to. The, the real meat of the conversation I want to get into is that, you know, you specifically are not a pollster per se. Instead, you're taking a lot of different data sources and building models to project the electorate, to project the race for various kinds of campaigns. And, and the purpose of that is not just to kind of give us this snapshot in time and enable horse race reporting, it's rather to help those campaigns make some decisions more strategically. Yeah. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the difference between yeah. pollsters and what you do. A couple different things. And, and we, you know, we field to create our models, we field a lot of survey interviews, but like you said, we don't come at it from the sort of more traditional polling angle. I think there's sort of two different things that I would really focus on. One is that when you're doing a traditional survey, you know, you're trying your best to, let's say you're in a particular state, Virginia, doing 800 interviews that you think represent the electorate statewide in, in a state like Virginia. And, and those are the 800 U's. You may, you may weight it, basically count certain interviews a bit more than others because you're having trouble reaching a particular set of people. So what we do that's a, a little bit different is that we create statistical models, zero to 100 probability scores that measure something. In, the, in this particular case, uh, it would be the probability to support a particular candidate. So, you know, we, we work on the Democratic side. Republicans also do this sort of tactic. But, you know, the closer you are to 100, the higher probability chance you have of supporting the Democratic candidate in a particular state or nationally or in a congressional district even. Uh, and then so what we then do is... You know, we field a whole lot of interviews uh, on a much shorter sample survey. So, and we match that back to a voter file. So we may do, you know, several thousand interviews in a state, and then link up those interviews. And we do them the same way with the candidate head-to-head -head question. You know, 
set of people mm-hmm. are voting for the Democrat, set of people are voting for the Republican, and you know people who are leaning one way or, or another. And then we match that back to an enhanced voter file. The voter file is generally speaking available to groups in in you know most states in the in the country. But you know both the Democratic and Republican side have a voter file that's been created nationally and has a lot of different information appended. You know probably you know one to two thousand different fields from different sources. A lot of data. Some of it is you know things like vote history. Other things are depending on census data or consumer data. You know, that's another thing that that gets covered in the media is, you know, use of consumer data and, you know, Democrats like white wine and Republicans like whiskey or whatever that, you know, 10, 10, 15 years ago, that was, that was something that people were really into uh, focusing on, you know, that, that data while it's out there is, is frankly, I think less useful than when you stitch all this together, use the interviews and match them into this data set. You have, let's say, you know, 1,000 interviews from the Democratic side, 1,000 interviews from the Republican side, put those together and in, as the so-called training data for a model. And you basically run in through a bunch of algorithms and rules that generates a set of rules that we then you know, standardize up into that probability score. And so it's using a whole bunch of different factors, looking at that polling data that we created and finding commonalities on this really large data set, which then gets stitched into a, a probability score. That's used for all sorts of voter contact and political work. But what we're talking about here is also using it to project out where we think a race would be, mm-hmm. uh, the actual horse race, so to, to speak. And what happens then is we're, since we have a prediction on every single voter on the voter file out there and, you know, four million voters in Virginia, we then combine that with a turnout model that's also on a zero to 100 basis and basically kind of add all this up. And then you actually see two two factors. One, you have a probability of each voter supporting the Democrat. And two, you have the probability of them turning out. And you basically combine these two factors, and then it, it gives you, one, a fully allocated projection. Let's say, you know, this is 52% for the Democrat, and then that would be, you know, 49% or 48%. Great. Arithmetic is <laughs> tough. But for the, for the Republican, and that is sort of another way to measure that head to head and the, a couple factors that make it different and and it's not always more correct i think we often find it gives you a little bit uh better information but one of the real challenges with polling let's say you're just talking about 800 interviews is you know it's only 800 interviews and if you're missing a set of non college educated Republican voters, which has gotten a lot of coverage of folks who are just less likely to take surveys, at least when you're looking at the voter file and you have that prediction, maybe they get a a pretty low score. Those people are still out there when you're actually adding up all the the projections from the voter file, whereas you might be really undersampling them in that 800. And so we've found that it can be an add layer of information that's a a bit different than just relying on a, a, a small sample of a whole state. There's a couple of things there. One is the, you know, propensity to support a candidate of one party versus another. And for a different project, we talked to Kim Parker from from Pew Research uh, mm-hmm. last summer. And one of the things she sort of mentioned in the conversation was that, you know, for, for their purposes, they tend to just sort of say people who say they lean one way or the other are functionally one way or the other. But I think there's also these Certainly in the news quite a bit, there are these sort of discussions about suppression of turnout and and sort of degree of support for a candidate. And there was a lot of looking into candidates' internal numbers, for instance, in the early you know Republican primaries of like X percent of people are saying they're going to vote for Haley, but they're not super excited about it. <laughs> you know, And so yeah. what are some things that go into the score for how likely am I to actually support a Democrat versus a Republican? I, I think that highlights a few, you know, key differences from polling because with polling you may you know ask a few different questions one you're asking who they're supporting two if they say eh, i'm not sure yet you're like well if election were held today which way would you lean and then they answer one way or, or the other and then you may follow up asking you know well how certain is your is your vote and mm-hmm. that sort of thing and and that's an area where asking in the scope of the survey gets you i think more information than what i'm i'm talking about here because mm-hmm. what i'm talking about you get 
two sides, the positive cases and the negative cases, and you feed those into those models, you have to make a decision from the survey of mm -hmm. what you're feeding in. And, and I think that deciding whether to include the leaners is actually one of those one of those mm -hmm. decisions. I think we we typically would because they are giving you some information and I think we've typically found that to be, you know, including both the the initial decided folks and the leaners on both sides, not including the unsure folks because again would add a lot of uncertainty uncertainty there, but it's really just that question that you're building the support model on. You're not mm -hmm. necessarily factoring in some of the other information around polling but then where the other information comes in are all those additional variables that are appended on the, the voter file. And so where they live and potentially consumer income data or gender and likely race, other models and other details that have been added to the individual voter records, those go, all get factored in as, as rules. And you know, these, these models are created for lots of other things than just you know, support on issues even other demographic factors, likelihood to support gun violence prevention measures or things like mm -hmm. that. And, and you would see different demographic factors if you're a man between the ages of you know 25 and 35 and you live in a rural zip code and you're likely to have a motorcycle, you know, statistically, that's kind of close to a, a rule that would say maybe you're not so supportive of certain gun violence prevention measures and that that sort of mm -hmm. thing. And so it's that type of data that adds up into it rather than a lot of different questions on the poll that feed into the modeling, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something we occasionally do with some tool like ArcGIS or something like that. To, yeah. You know, we, the, my friend Ferris Jacob, who works in the marketing and advertising world, talks a lot about there's a lot that you can determine basically by zip code. <laughs> about consumer yeah. behavior. Um, and census and, data, and census, census blocks, data. that's hugely important to this. I think yeah. that folks really tend to focus on individual data points, but there's really a, a lot with census that's, and particularly with the, you know, the, the newer data coming out, um, mm -hmm. it's really helpful in this type of modeling. And I think it's important to say the reason to model that is also that you have a lot of voters who have not declared a party affiliation, and yet they vote one way or another, right? They're, they're, they're still And roughly still half the states that, that people can't register by party, even if they want to. My own, mm -hmm. you know, home state, Virginia, is, doesn't have party registration. So the only mm -hmm. indicator you have in the state of the Democrat traditionally is um, which primary they voted in, which is information. But then you get a state like Michigan. I don't think they even track the partisan side of which right. primary you vote in. So you really have very few clues without doing something like this, who the Democrats and Republicans are. I mean, this is something that I think a lot of a lot of people don't realize. I'm originally from Oregon, which has a very particular way of holding elections and has had that way of holding yeah. elections for a long time. And even before mail-in voting, before which is became the, cool. Yeah, before, before it became cool. Thank you, Hipster Oregon. I grew up receiving a voter guide. Um, mm. that took you through all of the candidates and ballot measures and people could submit statements in support or whatever. You got the full text of the, you know, the amendment language or that kind of thing. I live in New York now. <laughs> there's there's no voter guide. Vote by mail is still this thing where you have to fill out an affidavit that you really actually have to do it. You know, there are closed primaries. Not every state has closed primaries. Not every state forces you to pick a party. I did some work with independent voters in Pennsylvania several years ago, and many of them believed that they were registered independents, but they were actually just no party, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, and so they, they believe they're a member of a party called independent, but they're not. And I think in some places there is like an independence, CE, not T at the end, yeah. party, but they weren't <laughs> members of that either. Um, <laughs> so, and we yeah. had voter file to, to be able to, to verify their, their party registrations. But I think it's important to keep in mind that from state to state, there is no standard way of determining people's party affiliations. Not, not at all. And I mean, I, you find that again, my Virginia example, you run into folks who are like, I'm a Democrat and they, and they are, but like, there's no way to tell the state that even if, if <laughs> voters think they may have told the state that um, you get to pick each primary, you can go in, you can decide it's open primary. So you can decide which primary to vote in as you head in there. And, and sometimes you get some crossover, you know, folks, so there's nothing competitive. So folks will, will cross over, but that primary data is really heavily used traditionally in, in political targeting. How is same day voter registration going to affect modeling? 
It, it definitely makes it harder because you don't know, particularly with the turnout models. And you gave an example, Oregon and any states that are all vote by mail or heavily vote by mail affects the turnout model. Same day registration affects both the turnout model. And we actually saw that recently in the Virginia House of Delegate elections that we worked in this, this past year in 2023, is that... If you're anticipating there's, you know, actually two different house districts, one uh, down the Roanoke area uh, and one out uh, Williamsburg area, that Democrat actually did significantly better than what you'd otherwise think because there were uh, two different college campuses where folks would show up. And it's really not a great way to measure that. And so it's not mm -hmm. something that you can factor in. There's whole states, you know, Wisconsin, New Hampshire, where you have for a long time now, same day registration. And so that information is often not factored in to the modeling, our turnout model, or even the sports score, because those people don't exist on the voter file. One of the advantages we have is we're relying on, we know all the people who exist on the voter file currently. And that actually gives us a significant leg up sometimes of just sampling a, a set of people <laughs> out there. Uh, but if, if the people aren't on the voter file and they can easily join as part of voting, you're also not going to capture them. That's where there's a, a lot of art still with with the science. And and this it, this affects polling, too, because if you're oftentimes polls now are sampled from the voter file, even if you're not doing modeling, you really will you know take a voter file. And that's I think that's a great development because you're actually pulling from a list of, of voters and making some decisions around that, pulling a list of phones or to either text them or call them or other factors. But they're also typically not captured if people aren't on the voter file. Right. So there's, you know, propensity of support for one party or another, but there's also this question of how likely is someone to actually turn out and vote. And you you do have pundits who at least take a look at the the basic description of the sample mm -hmm. for polls. Of, are we just talking about a non-sponsored YouGov poll that's all U.S. adults? Or is it registered voters? Is it likely voters? What is a likely voter? I mean, there's sort of, you yeah. know, APOR publishes a standard for screening people into a survey. People use what they use. But what's a likely voter as as you understand it? That depends on from survey to survey, even sometimes within the same polling shop, it depends on which polling shop's doing it. I mean, I think everybody has their own definition of a likely voter. Some some follow the, the traditional methods where you can look up, as you said, on APOR and actually see the you know, survey, you screen folks, ask people how likely they are to, to vote. You know, we've found recently, and that's one of the things because we check things against the voter file, that that traditional screening method is is not something that we, we personally prefer because there's a, a, a lot of factors. One, people, you know, either trying to get off the phone or for other factors say, no, nah, I'm not, not voting. And you actually, you can do some tests. And this has been even, you know, 10 plus years ago, we did some some checks like this, you actually see among those people who said they're not voting, you line it up with their, their voter file record and, and many yeah. of them do actually vote. Yeah. Uh, and and They just don't want is, to talk to this pollster. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they don't want to talk to it. And, you know, you get the flip side more as well, where people say they are voting because it's a, you know, it's a, there's kind of a bias towards the socially desirable response mm -hmm. there. When you check those responses, they're just typically not that accurate in some cases. And that's been the case for a long time now. And I think that's something that, you know, really hasn't been traditionally factored in as much. And now more and more folks are are looking at that. But I think the other factor that makes, you know, creating a definition of a likely voter even more challenging is, you know, you really have to ask what type of election. Is this the Virginia off-year election 2023? Is this the, you know, 2022 election? You know, is this before that in 2020? Looking ahead to, to 2024, likely voter definitions obviously change and people do adjust their methodologies, but increasing the problem is um, non-response. Mm. And, you know, one of the challenges is just simply now, and I think this is more so than 10 years ago, definitely more than 20 years ago, it's really can't get non-likely voters on the phone or even to respond to any type of survey. Uh, online, I think typically, you know, we'll do a little better at that. You get some folks, you know, particularly in some of the panels, there's other challenges and other sources of bias there as well. But really in terms of any traditional polling uh, that's phone-based, either SMS or, or voice, the, the non-likely voters hang up. Uh, and so you're often not capturing that segment, even if if you want to. And you're even more, you know, when looking at a presidential cycle, I think 
undersampling the a number of people who really are actually likely to vote because it's a presidential cycle and we get decently high turnout in mm-hmm. you know almost every presidential cycle relative to anything else. And so I think as we look ahead to 24, there's a, even more challenges with some of the accuracy and figuring out likely voters just based on, on samples because of the fact that more and more people are going to vote. If you're just looking at Virginia 23 elections or even a uh, midterm like 22, the biases in terms of who will respond to your surveys line up much better with the likely voters as mm. as well. And so bringing it back, I, sorry, to your original question, I think <laughs> um, we tend to use the, the turnout model, that zero to 100 probability score that you know we rebuild that for every election cycle. And so a 2024 turnout model is much different, has much bigger expected turnout than, let's say, Virginia 2023, which is way narrower, mm-hmm. or even than 2022, which is obviously you know, a, a wider universe, but not nearly as, as wide as the 24. And so we, we tend to rely on that, that voter score that's based on the actual voter file for everything to do. And we don't, you know, don't terminate based on the likelihood to vote question. Don't even really use that in, for instance, waiting because we match everything back to the voter file and use that turnout score to weight the the surveys rather than uh, anything on the, uh, that voters have actually told us about their probability to turn out. Right. So one of the things that I've encountered with that independent voter project was a screen that was something about four of the last six or something like that. Like the and, and these all this the six assumed were midterms and generals, not off year elections or states that have odd year. We weren't doing that. We weren't, weren't New Jersey doing odd years. Yeah. Was that, was that pulling from the voter file or, or asking folks? About it, it was both. So we, we did verify right. to the voter file. So we asked them about it. And you're absolutely right about the the wobble in people's memories about, yeah. <laughs> about did I vote in that midterm? I don't know. And just their accuracy and being able to talk about that. But the thing that struck me at the time about that was if, if you're requiring voted for in the last six as a likely voter I- indicator, then almost by definition, you're not getting people under a certain age because they can't have yeah. voted in four yeah. of the last six. And, and so, you know, I think this kind of sample bias question of, of people who don't respond to polls, people who wouldn't make it into your model because they've never voted before, people who could o- are, have only just become eligible to vote, all of those things kind of are, are, are in the realm of sample bias. But I think the one that has been getting quite a bit of attention, particularly since 2016, is the non-response bias of the people yeah. who aren't responding to polls, even if they're being contacted, they're not res- they're not answering the phone or they're not taking the online survey, they're not responding to the text. Why is that happening? Who, amongst whom does that happen the most? I know that there's a lot of fretting about young voters, for for example, yeah. who don't answer the phone. But but maybe talk a bit about why has this yeah. come up as the new thing? No, and it, that makes a, a ton of sense. And I, I do think to the you know, one small point to the earlier question about looking at vote history versus the turnout model. I mean, that is one reason why we don't like to rely on vote history is because, you know, it's if somebody hasn't been on the file with the turnout model, every single person gets a score, even if they've never voted before. Obviously, their score is lower, but if they're younger, they just registered, you know, you still, let's say you get a, a 20% likelihood to vote, a 15% likelihood to vote instead of an 85% or a 90%. Mm-hmm. And so you still get factored in based on that percent, whereas you just be completely eliminated if you you dealt with vote history. And, and that, I think, is really important because of the the response bias that you're talking about there. You think about it, we all have our cell phones, a lot going on, and, and a lot of traditional surveys are at least 15 minutes long. And so I think it's it's that. It's just, you know, there's lots been written on it and, you know, folks were perceived they have less time. There's just a, a lot more going on. And, and if it's not quick, they're, they're not re- responding to it particularly. And, and, you know, folks who don't use their phone to make phone calls are not going to suddenly start taking 15 minute surveys. And so, uh, you know, SMS, obviously you've probably gotten them. Lots of folks out there have gotten SMS surveys. Obviously that becomes a little easier in, in the mode, taking it on online. And that's definitely a segment that's grown a lot uh, across a lot of political pollsters. But even then, you know, the response rate on, on that is, is quite low. And I also think it's just the proliferation of, of surveys as well. There's so much information coming at folks that just much less likely to respond than 
you know, 20, 30 years ago when you picked up the phone and either, you know, after you're at dinner, maybe you wouldn't respond to it. I think it's everything that we we -hmm. see that's just way broader than just political surveys that's impacting the the overall response rates there. We have the same issues. Uh, (laughs) Response rates are through the floor for all kinds of uh, market research. I I think one of the things that I, I feel like came up a lot after 2016, both in the US and UK, was the kind of shy voter, shy yeah. whichever affiliation voter. <laughs> this idea that one of the things that made Trump's success in 2016 a surprise to a lot of people was that he did well among people who were unlikely voters and who did not respond to surveys. And that there has been, you know, a little bit of a meal made of the idea that certain kinds of conservative leaning voters in particular in recent elections have been less likely to respond to pollsters because of attitudes towards polling, for example, whereas Democrats have been trust, enthusiastic. Trust in media, maybe. Yeah. That's similar. Yeah. And, and meanwhile, Democrats will answer the phone and tell a pollster what they think because they're, yeah. <laughs> you know, some sort of go team go kind of um, yeah. um, thing going on. And then I want to come back to like a turnout model as opposed to sampling likely voters because these are very different exercises. And you know, there's there's some interplay between them. But, you know, one is trying to say you should trust our survey because we have included people that are going to go vote. But they haven't. They haven't included everybody who could go vote. Yeah. W- what are some of the drivers you are seeing of non-response? Is it is it just we're all too busy and can't take a 15 minute survey or are there other factors? I mean, I think that's probably the, <laughs> the, the biggest, biggest dominant driver, yeah. because most people of all political stripes aren't responding. I mean, that's the, mm-hmm. you know, the as you said, the percent rates have, have gone down. And in certain elections, I think, and in certain times, um, you know, 2016 election, you said, you know, focused in on non-college white voters or something. But the response bias, I do think, tends to vary somewhat state by state and election to election, how folks are feeling about the election. You definitely get a factor on either side if likely voters are maybe unhappy about how the election is going on, on either side, either the Democratic or the the Republican side, and I, I think we've seen this in in multiple cases, or they're unhappy with the current coverage of what's going on in the media, and they're just, you know, you look at their turnout score, and and they're ninety five percent likely to vote, but they're just like, I'm not, I'm not going to deal with it, I'm not going to respond, and I think that happens on all sides, and I do, you know, do think we see more non response among the Republican side in general, but it, it definitely happens in, in both cases. And, and so that's why I do think it's somewhat of a moving target and makes it a, a bit harder to deal with. One of the ways we, we deal with it is, again, using the voter file as an overlay to, to look at. You know, we have a, our turnout model, which we think, you know, obviously we're, we're biased stocks. We, we build it and, and think it works pretty well. This is actually the one thing you can validate after the election because you get the vote history back and you actually can look at your turnout model and say, okay, here's where we did well. Here's where we can improve it. And our, our goal is always to have the model, you know, properly get that ratio of Democrats to Republicans. So we're not biasing our own numbers, but you look at that, you have the the plot of the electorate, you look at it on, you know, age or partisanship and other things. And and as you get the data in from the different modes, you know, whether it's voice interviews to landlines, voice interviews to cell phones, you know, SMS responses to an, an online survey or actual online surveys, you can match those up and see, great, here's the plot of what the partisanship of this election should look like. And here's mm-hmm. the plot of all of our survey modes together. And, and great, we actually see there's not enough Republicans in the sample, or, or there's too many Democrats, but the right number of Republicans, or it's too college educated. You know, every sample's too old. Uh, and particularly in 24, you're going to see that because the younger voters are more likely to vote. They, they, you know, older voters are more likely to vote, but there's a definitely a set of younger folks that um, are undersampled there. And so I think that's one of the best things you try to do is just be a bit more transparent about how this looks and compares it to, to the voter file. And, and that's one of the ways we deal with it in addition to using multiple modes to reach people because you know particularly state by state those modes can can really vary in terms of who's responding to which one uh, right. from a partisan standpoint 
Yeah, you had a really interesting sort of anecdote about about that. I think when we when we spoke last time that there are there are just sort of certain states and certain places where you know th- there's not great cell coverage, and so people are on yeah. landlines, or there's not great broadband adoption. I don't think there's one single right answer, and and I think that probably the example we were talking about before was um, Maine, and 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 clearly there's you know there's been a lot of efforts uh, into rural broadband and lots and lots of improvements, but. The reality of it is sampling a state like Maine, you know, with a northern congressional district two in particular, is just much different than sampling Georgia and and trying to reach folks, you know, both with rural and then a, but a really big urban population center. I think this is also then something we should talk a little bit about, which is the concept of waiting, which mm-hmm. is a, a way that survey designers and quantitative researchers do things regardless of whether it's politics or otherwise. There's waiting examples. Yeah. <laughs> There's also, I think that this winds up being a, a misnomer, oversampling a particular group in order to yeah. be able to say something about them. You know, so we Mm-hmm. We surveyed slightly more African-American voters than it would make them representative in the general population sense or in the likely voter model. But we wanted to be able to dig in on them and we needed enough of them yeah. in order to be able to do that. <laughs> so maybe just talk about some of those tools and, and how they're useful, how how they're helpful when done correctly. I think that even brings up one one of the other challenge that that you have with reading polling results is, you know, let's say you had your 800 interview survey that's our 800 best, most representative responses in in a particular state. But then an oversample would be, okay, we're purposely then going to add another 200 African-American interviews or 200 interviews from rural communities Mm -hmm. to, to have more data there that would then obviously, if you just took it as a whole, not actually be a representative statewide sample. But one of the one of the challenges is that oftentimes folks will We'll take that 800 survey and drill down into the the cross tabs. I guess uh, uh, <laughs> good good name for a, a podcast there, and quickly end up with a very very small sample that they're then you know whether it be just voters who live in rural areas, just voters who are identifying the African American community, and and you may only be talking about 100 or 200 people, and then you're trying to zero into that and make a lot of decisions, and so folks. You know, I think rightly will want to add interviews. If you're trying to to reach out to one of those communities, you may want to boost the sample there so you actually learn something useful between other factors in the crosstabs of, of the survey between age or gender or other, you know, crossing it with other questions around folks who are supporting the Democratic candidate in the rural community. You quickly get down to a, a very small sample size there. But, you know, what's the goal? I and mean, that's the key thing is, are you looking to research within that community? Are you trying to just simply project out the horse race? And and so, you know, there's a lot of conflicting goals, I think, with surveys. Mm-hmm. And so being cognizant, and, and I think the the length of the survey, you know, people may have a lot of questions they legitimately want to ask voters. That's a conflicting goal with getting the right horse race, because more and more people drop off the phone if you have the 15-minute survey right. and the, your overall sample becomes less representative. But, you know, the oversampling, I think, is just another one of those tools. And you have to deal that with that in the overall statewide weighting so that you're not letting your statewide numbers, maybe you'll have one version weighted on the 800 interviews, and then you have the oversample as an add-on separately to, to dig mm-hmm. into the, to the crosstabs as well. This is something we're we're also going to talk to Amelia Showalter next week um, yes. <laughs> about awesome. about some of the I uses of this for that. yeah you know for for these types of outreach for like you know voter mobilization or fundraising mm. or or those those kinds of uses as well but there's sort of a way in which like the day to day public polling is not really all that useful to the camp the people running campaigns and and running the different aspects of campaigns it's sort of like okay it's in the news cycle we're going to have to deal with it maybe but and it's interesting might be useful but mostly it's not mostly we're looking at our you know our internal polling we're looking at our model we're running simulations and and experimenting and ab testing and doing all of these other things that give us more useful real time feedback than than these large public polls you know, I think one of the things that is interesting, I guess, is that all the attention kind of goes to the public polling. And we might be, if we're super news junkies, aware that campaigns do their own polling. But I don't know how aware people really are about what these turnout models are. I think that they think that there's some kind of um, 
game <laughs> that campaigns yeah. are playing. I, I, what is it that makes a good turnout model? Like, what what are is it just the amount of data in it, or or how do you how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I I think there's a a couple of factors, and I I completely agree with with everything you you said there, and 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 yeah, the the public polling impacts. Uh, media narrative and even fundraising and that sort of thing. So it's very important mm-hmm. to campaigns, but it doesn't like really drive their internal strategy. Like, like you said, you know, turnout model, I think the other important factor as you maybe delve down into it a little bit on the technical level is that, you know, it's not, it's not built based on polling data, the, you know, mm-hmm. a candidate support model, which is the other important factor in the projections would be built on polling data of, of mm-hmm. a variety of sorts, but a turnout model, because you know, asking voters about their probability to turn out is not particularly helpful. And the fact that you don't actually reach the people who aren't likely to turn out, the, the turnout models are built typically. And, you know, again, this depends on who's building them. Like all of these things, likely voter models depend on which polling shop, but they're typically built on the past vote history and projected forward. And so the, you know, 2024 turnout models are typically built on the 2020 vote history. And so, you mm-hmm. know, all the people who voted in 2020 and you know all the people who didn't and, and you use that as the so-called training data for for the model to generate the rules on likelihood to vote in 24 and i think where the sort of either art or secret sauce or whatever whatever you want to call it <laughs> comes in is you know figuring out how to properly walk that forward mm-hmm. into 2024 so that you're not just simply reprojecting the 2020 election cycle because that also wouldn't be that useful either because maybe it's similar. Maybe we expect things to be different in terms of lower, higher turnout. And so there's a lot of sort of adjustments and and real detailed analytics that happens there to make that work. But the basis of it typically is a, a election that we think is the closest mirror to the upcoming election, which is often four years ago, if you're mm-hmm. on a four-year cycle of presidential or midterms, or in a state like Virginia that has off-off year elections, like mm-hmm. a, a 23 election cycle where it's just House of Delicate races. Right. You know, you want to be you build your turnout model on a appropriate election cycle. And that's one of the biggest things in terms of doing it right. Because if you tried to build a turnout model for an off year on an on year vote history, you're you're really gonna have a lot of challenges and and end up with an incorrect projection of of the electorate. You know, one of the challenges with people who are not that sophisticated about this stuff trying to kind of follow the news about predictions about how the election might go. And that's the difference between state level data and mm-hmm. national data. I mean even yeah. even in polling, that sort of results will will be come November. Not everybody has that gold standard pollster in their state who does brilliant work, <laughs> who apparently also has a philosophy of survey everybody who's registered, not just the people you think are likely to turn out. But I, I think this is also relevant to the question of how these models get developed, is that it's it's not some giant nationwide turnout model. These are state turnout models, and then they are based on the type of race we're looking at, because each cycle whether it's these off-off years or midterms or the four-year general cycles, they all turn out differently and in different amounts. Is there a difference in approach to creating models, you know, cycle by cycle or state by state, or is it still basically the same principles in play? Um, Maybe just sort of talk about um, that distinction. I mean, I think, um, you know, there's a couple, I mean, a lot of the tactics and what we learn can be helpful from, you know, cycle we were always trying to improve and you know there's a lot of the things we do are similar you know building at a state level for instance you know 2023 a Kentucky governor's race Virginia House of Delegates races you know but those have to be built at a, a state level when we're looking at a national election we have a what we call our national turnout model but it is built in a way that makes sure we're capturing the state dynamics as as well and so there's you know some a lot of differences there between those two but you know there's you know there's also a whole lot of similarities we're just it's a matter of scale and what you're mm-hmm. what you're predicting forward and so i think that's that's the key thing because you know you're basing 2023 on 2019 you're basing 2024 on 2020 even if tactically you're doing a lot of the same analytic things 
uh, you know, you, you're ending up with different results because those are two very different election uh, cycles as as well. But you know, dealing with the state dynamics is important, and I think you you know you you're sort of alluding to that. I mean, we're not even we don't even try to pull the, the caucus goers. I don't we don't have a turnout model for that, and not going to <laughs> not going to touch that because uh, you know, frankly, don't need that most of the time. Right. Um, I'll defer <laughs> yeah. to the the folks in Iowa, but I think that you know that's really what our our recommendation and, and bias is, is just like looking at the state, you know, both in mode and in likely voters and voting patterns, states voted, you know, Oregon turns out at a really high rate and, you know, Washington, D.C. turns out at a really low rate in the general election, you know, due to competitiveness and all, all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And so that understanding the state as part of the what we're looking at, whether it's the turnout model or the sampling overall, I think is one of the biggest things that that we focus on. And again, you know, national, a national survey is obviously very different. You know, there's been coverage of that in terms of the presidential head to head nationally mm-hmm. is different than state by state as well. And and so just being cognizant of, of what we're looking at, I think for, for folks out there is, is pretty important. You know, what's this, the scope of the survey? Is it a state level? Is it registered voters? Is it likely voters? What modes mm-hmm. did folks use? And, you know, how was it created? How was the likely voters defined? You know, are all, I think, the the stuff we like to, to, to focus on when, when looking state by state. So. And so as as the course of a campaign goes on, and, and maybe this will be kind of my, my last question before my very last question, is as, as a campaign goes on and, you know, there's the theory of the official start of a, of a presidential election year is January, which of course is a lie. Um, but huh. as a campaign progresses, how often are you updating your predictions based on the model? How often are you updating the model? I think that depends. It, it depends a bunch. It depends on, you know, the, the campaigns. I do think barring an event that happens, there's a lot more stability than I think the horse race may lead us to believe. Uh, and that's one reason why, you know, even if we don't update the model particularly frequently, you actually find that something you create in, you know, let's say April, really, it, if a race doesn't change, it, it tends to to stay the same. And so one of the things we do is we're always validating it. We're looking at it against polling data. And I think one of the is, important point I want to make is that it's not that, oh, we only need a model to predict the race. We only need polling data. No, these are helpful tools together mm-hmm. because it is much easier and more cost effective just to run a quick tracking survey and get more data than it is to go through the whole scale of rebuilding a, a model. And so it's a it's a mm-hmm. big endeavor. And so, you know, you're not necessarily going to, to update it particularly frequently, but you may keep an eye on things with tracking surveys and and matching that to the model and and you know seeing how they look oh does it look like the this difference in the top line in the tracking survey is a real difference or is that just movement in the sample is that just noise and so mm. that's one of the that's how the tools can be really helpful together is looking at the model you look back at the model in the voter file and think nah we just think this the survey is very much in line with what the model said things haven't really changed or wow it's starting to you know things are starting to look different a couple months later maybe it's time to do a bigger scale update mm-hmm. and so i think because this is an internal strategic tool it really varies a lot and is just something we like to to monitor rather than you know doing analytics for just the sake of doing more analytics folks love <laughs> you know monthly but it would be a waste of our clients money to do really frequent updates of these types of of models. Yeah. I would imagine, and and maybe I'm wrong about this, that the kind of thing that constitutes a significant enough shock to change the the prediction about turnout, they don't really happen that often, even if, (laughs) even if the press thinks they do. (laughs) Like, you know, I don't know. Um, (laughs) Yesterday's news, for example, uh, coming out of the the special prosecutor's office, um, if you you were watching last night's, any of the news networks last night, you would think this was a thing that's like, this is it, this is going to change the trajectory of the campaign. And maybe it will, maybe it won't. I have no idea. I'm not the one running the models. Yeah. You know, the 2008 financial crisis or the Comey letter or whatever, those, those things often get pointed to as things that shake up how it's actually going to go. But I wonder if that's accurate. I mean, do they have that big of an effect on the turnout model? I mean, I think in terms of turnout, and there's sort of two factors, does it have an effect on overall turnout and whether people are going to vote or does it have an effect on who they're going to vote for? And those Mm -hmm. are, you know, again, the two different 
predictions. And I think right. sometimes they have an effect on one or both, and oftentimes they don't. And often at times I think it's timing and, and how much information is available about the candidates. There's a lot of information available about the presidential candidates and a lot more than most people <laughs> want. People's assumptions and thoughts and are, are really, you know, already baked in. And so does news in early February, you know, really impact a swing? Uh, you know, I'd, I'd be inclined to think that a lot of people have, have ingrained in those opinions. And that, and that this is a case where, you know, whatever the model says isn't going to blip as much as maybe response rates and polls. And so I think that right. well, the bigger thing that happens with these sorts of news uh, items, unless there's something that truly has new information or defines otherwise undefined candidates, is that the blips oftentimes are the blips in response rates after big news events. Um, mm. And so I think that... <laughs> tends to be an important thing that folks lose track of is that the it really is it's it's changing the response rates on surveys it's changing the democrats are mad and they're hanging up because they don't like the recent news republicans are a little more excited because they're like oh man our our guy's going to win and so they that might up their response rates and i think mm -hmm. you see some of some of that but i i don't want to undercount the fact that you know information does change races and and trying mm -hmm. to to tease out when it is and when it's just simply changing our measurement of it is a really important, important factor. Mm -hmm. So my, my last question is, is there something we didn't talk about today that you think is a thing that people often get wrong in thinking about or covering polls, data, et cetera, with respect to elections? Is there is there something that annoys you <laughs> in the way that it gets talked about <laughs> or the way that the way that it seems like people understand it. In my world, I have lots of those, but um, but I don't know about for, for you and yours. Well, maybe to just give a specific example that I think is the thing that jumps to mind is, is you know, we, we looked at this in the Kentucky governor's race in this last year in 2023, and there was a lot of coverage in, in state of the, the trajectory of surveys and how much movement had happened at a sub-demographic level and, and looking at Younger voters are, you know, supporting the Democratic candidate. We're supporting the Democratic candidate at sixty percent, and now there's actually been a twenty-five point swing, and you know, really covering that. And then when you you rolled it up and you looked at the two different surveys, the first one was one thousand interviews uh, of registered voters, and then the second one was four hundred. I may have that reversed, but four hundred fifty interviews of likely voters. And they're just completely different. And you're talking about movement of a sub-demographic, younger voters who don't respond very well to surveys, and what percent of the 450 voters were actually young voters. And a 25-point swing is just completely wrong. It, nothing swings 25 <laughs> points in, in a real race. Um, and sure, I think but that, in a 450 you know, person sample, if you've got 25 yes. people in that group, it looks, it looks pretty exactly. bad. Yeah coverage of the crosstabs uh, is often the most annoying thing because, you know, that's even worse in many respects from a data quality standpoint than the top line level. But certainly that that from my perspective would be one of the more more annoying things to, yes. <laughs> to see happen. <laughs> Which is, I think, one of the reasons this show is called what it's called. We have covered a lot of ground and maybe we will do this again at some point in time. Yeah. But this was really great for me and I'm really grateful to for spending the second hour of talking to me about this. Thanks for having me on. This is this is fun. Love to to think about it more and hear more about where you all take this. Awesome, David. Well, thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. Thank you. Crosstabs is hosted by me, Farah Bostic, with Paul Soldera. Production by The Difference Engine and edited by me. Music from Audio Jungle by S Audio. Find us at crosstabspodcast.com, where you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter and find out immediately when new episodes drop. Tell your friends about the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast service, drop us a note if you have any questions about poll design or sampling or waiting or anything else, and we'll see you next time. 